0: The one thing about being creatively successful and talented, and I know it sounds arrogant, people are really envious and people are really shitty. It's like, cause they can't do it. I'm like, I don't care, that's your problem. You know, if I have that innate talent, like maybe you'll be a doctor, maybe you'll be a lawyer, maybe you'll be a firefighter. Like you have your set of skills and talents, which we don't articulate in our teams, but piss off and let me be me.
1: Hello and welcome to the Circle Five Podcast. My name is Mallory Patrick Pollard. I'm an artist living in Los Angeles, California. Circle Five is a podcast dedicated to conversations with artists and creative professionals where we discuss the topic of work, life, and creative balance. From my personal experience, I believe that there are five different circles of relationships or circles of social interaction that exist inside the life of every artist. I'm curious to know how these circles have impacted my guests and how they navigate them in their day-to-day lives. I feel so fortunate to speak with guests who are longtime friends or new acquaintances. And for this episode, I'd like to share my conversation with Caitlin Kelly. She's a writing coach and writer from Terrytown, New York. She's had quite an impressive career and resume, so buckle up. I hope you're ready to hear it. She's been a published writer for decades, first having contributed to the Globe and Mail at the age of 19. She was a staff reporter for the Montreal Gazette and New York Daily News. She's also been a regular contributor to the Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. Kaylin has been a freelance writer in the magazine world as well, with her work published in some titles you've definitely heard of, like Cosmopolitan, Forbes, Marie Claire, The Smithsonian, and many more. And she's been a winner of the Canadian National Magazine Award, the nation's top honor for journalists. Her WordPress blog entitled Broadside has been active for the last 14 years, and she's amassed over 23,000 followers worldwide. She's a published author of two well-reviewed nonfiction books entitled Blown Away, American Women and Guns, and mauled my unintentional career in retail. Lastly, with her wealth of experience, she devotes her time to being a writing consultant and writing coach with well over 50 clients on her roster. What an honor it was to have her as a guest and to now call her a friend, She is hopefully the last guest I'll have to offer a public apology to. The episodes I recorded in 2022 have taken me a very long time to edit and publish. We'll just call that season one, but now I am present. Very last thing, Caitlin did ask me to not reveal her age, so you may hear our audio skip a few times as I'm trying to edit around it, but I think it was pretty seamless. I don't think you'll be able to tell. Either way, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening to the Circle 5 podcast, and here's my talk with Caitlin Kelly. Caitlin Kelly, how are you? It's so good to see you.
0: Thank you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's, you know, 98 degrees and we're both sweaty, (laughs) but um, we're okay.
1: Yeah, we're going to make it through this. I just can't thank you enough for wanting to be a guest on the Circle Five podcast. What I do to start each conversation is tell the story of the meet cute, right? Like how did we meet one another? And you are officially the sixth uh, guest that I've had. This is the sixth episode officially. Cool. And you're the first person that I've met just kind of on a whim. You know, everyone's <laughs> been a longtime friend, but uh, it just it's that's the point of the podcast. I love this. So I i should have looked up the exact date, but it was only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we it was like about a month. Yeah. So
0: today's 24th. Yeah, it's actually yes. almost about a month. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you were my Lyft passenger in Pasadena. I remember taking you to, oh, what's the name of the hotel? The Langham. I should have, the, the Langham in Pasadena. Yes, I was splurging. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we just had this really wonderful conversation. So I also like to, uh, Caitlin, say, like, you know, I'll give you what my impressions of you were, and you can give back okay. your impressions oh, dear. of me. No, oh, dear. No, no, no. Oh, no, it's, the, oh, no. See, it's, it starts us off <laughs> on a nice, uncomfortable note. But okay. the, the question I'm going to start asking my guests, in, in addition to your impressions of me, whatever they may have been, but also just your reasons for saying yes and why you wanted to be on the podcast. So. I'll start us off. I just remember you being just, the right word is brilliant. I mean, listeners, not to put her on a pedestal, but when you hear her, how she speaks and the story she's going to tell, you can just tell that she's sharp and she's with it. And it was just so comforting and reassuring to hear someone of such a professional caliber share her stuff. I, I think that's the best way to say it. So when you hear, we've already we've already read her bio. When you hear more of her stories, you'll see why I absolutely wanted her on the podcast. And I'm just so humbled that you're here. So oh, I like think you said, you- uh, and, and what were your impressions of me? Uh-oh. Well,
0: no, seriously, it was, no, and I'm really happy to do it Cause a couple of things, I mean, number one, like I, this is really honest. Like I don't take lifts or Ubers. It's just nothing I I ever do. I have, I have discomfort with it because obviously you're doing what you have to do. And I really respect that. And you're a creative person. So like, I have a lot of empathy for that. You know, I worked retail and we can talk about that. That was my last book. And, you know, these jobs are not a ton of fun sometimes. So right. I immediately sort of thought, okay, this, this guy's doing what he has to do. And I respect that for sure. I remember you telling me, correct me if I'm wrong, that your specialty was photographing dance. Is that correct?
1: Well, overall, it's been mostly performing arts or photojournalism in general, whether that's someone's wedding or like a corporate event, that kind of thing. So yes.
0: Yeah. Well, the performing arts thing stuck in my head because I've studied dance for years I wrote about dance for years. I just went to see the ballet like two weeks ago. Photographing the performing arts is actually very difficult. It's really hard to capture it in the moment. It's really hard to capture the spirit. It takes a very special kind of skill. So that stuck in my head. I was like, okay, this is an interesting guy. And obviously you're very well-spoken. I was like, Screw it! Let's let's just do it. You know, yeah. I don't know. just, I mean, that's I and great. that's sort of typical of me. Like I'm pretty spontaneous, and you know, if you were weird, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs>
1: <So>. <laughs> well, good. See, we're checking off that box. Not weird. Oh, I love it. Well, not it. yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. We're going to record okay. for a little over an hour, but no, no. Okay. Thank you again for doing this. And again, I, I shared with you during uh, the ride and emails, you know, before recording this, that the Circle Five podcast is the, about the idea of talking with artists and creative professionals about all the different. Different types of relationships in our lives. And I believe that there are five different circles. And so it's kind of a deep dive today, Caitlin, on your life's relationships. It's a little bit retrospective, and obviously we'll bring it present as well. But I'm honestly looking for, as the host and as an artist, some insight at the end of this into the idea of work-life and creative balance, how you deal with it and how it's going for you. And so if you're ready, I'm ready. We can yep. dive into Circle Five. for sure. And we start always at the beginning with, where were you born?
0: Oh, born in Vancouver, Canada.
1: Okay. And uh, if you don't mind uh, uh, sharing with us uh, your current age.
0: <laughs> oh, God.
1: <laughs> uh, if you don't mind.
0: <laughs> you should have warned me. I never, I never reveal it.
1: You don't have to. You don't have to. We can leave it as mystery. I, I, I will
0: admit to over 50 and then I just like, Okay. don't. <laughs> we Sorry. Can,
1: we can, no, it's fine. It's, it's definitely okay. It's, it just and... be,
0: we can talk more about why. It's just, I'm yeah. still working and it's a very ageist world out there. And I try not yeah. to like buy into that or let people do that to me. So sorry, sorry to be difficult, but yeah.
1: Mm-mm. No, no, no. It's, it's a fair point And it is worth talking about as as we go on. Okay. Uh, but something you started sharing with me a little bit uh, via email before yep. we recorded was about your father and his yep. story a little bit. So I really like to start with family and ancestry. I mean, Kelly sounds Irish to me, but just quick shot, uh, both sides of the family, where's your ancestry? Do you know where your family's from?
0: Oh, yeah, sure, sure. So my mom was American, born in New York. Very, very, very wealthy family. Like her her mom was married six times, four times in a decade, once to a lifeguard. She tried to sue for alimony. So it's a very crazy, wealthy crowd. Um, Eccentric as hell. Very spoiled. Very, um, we do what we want to do as much as we can within the bounds of the law. Uh, My dad was born also wealthy in Vancouver. His father was a self-made millionaire. I'd never heard the word millionaire described to me until like a couple of years ago. I'm like, I knew your dad was rich. I never met my grandparents. So my dad had left a tiny, tiny town in Ireland, Northern Ireland. His father was the schoolmaster in a one-room schoolhouse, and I've been there twice. And the minute you see a one-room schoolhouse, you understand why somebody leaves a town like that, because there's no future. So I have huge admiration for that grandfather. He's a tough son of a bitch. Somehow ends up in Vancouver, starts a huge trucking company. So my father goes up in Vancouver with a horse and a sailboat, and this very glamorous life, of course, then my parents, it's very, you know, out of a book, it's sort of Gatsby-esque, they meet in the south of France, of course. And my mom is 17 and my dad is 23 and they fall madly in love. And my mother goes home and she's desperate to flee her mother and says, that's it, book the wedding, that's it, I'm done. I found my husband and my father, who never meant his words, said, if I'd passed her on the street, I wouldn't recognize your mother. And then they get married <laughs> and, and they lasted for 13 years, which is a long time given their respective personalities. Having said that, they're both, my mom since died, but they're both super bright people, very curious, world travelers, culturally super omnivorous. I grew up with, we can talk about this because this is really important for me, a lot of art in the house, not Monet's, nothing like that, but really beautiful, eclectic art. And as I'm talking to you and I'm looking around the room, we have a lot of art in our home, in our one bedroom, and some of it are very famous photographs by friends of ours. There's a huge pastel portrait of my great-grandmother it's really important to me to sort of have beauty around me. And that was very much, very much my childhood. There was always something interesting and wonderful. And they're both pain in the asses, these people. But I mean, really not, <laughs> not not, easy parents, not nurturing, not supportive in a lot of ways. We can talk about that. So I'm, I'm a very, very independent person. I left my mom when I was 14. So we can talk about
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what Circle One is all about. That's what we're talking about. It's like all these influences that not only led to you as an artist, but you as a person. Yeah. 14. That is very, very young. So you said they lasted 13 years. Give me the timeline of like when you were born in that, they divorced and you were a child or yeah, yeah, how did all that...
0: So my mom had me when she was 23. So when she gets divorced, which is back in the 60s and nobody got divorced, broken marriage. There was a whole... Thing and I got sent up to boarding school at the age of eight, which is very English and very weird. And we can talk about that as an influence. <laughs> um, so I basically was sort of institutionalized in a very privileged way because I went to uh, private school, boarding school all year, and then I went to summer camp all summer. So I didn't really see very much of my parents. They get divorced when I'm 7. My dad travels the world making films and having various girlfriends, which was always a great focus of his. Um and my mom just sort of did what she wanted to do. It was pretty strange. I mean it was very on paper it's very privileged. And so it's hard to talk about cuz people say, well, private school, summer camp, you're like, yeah, you're surrounded by strangers. So in and in good ways and bad ways, it absolutely affected who I am and how I interact with the world creatively and as a human being, for sure. Like it's it's only in later years I'm really starting to see how it's affected
1: me. No, absolutely. And and thank you for sharing it. I mean, that's vulnerable stuff, circle one. I mean, family, those are always the deepest wounds, if that's the word I can use. I'm sure there's a better word, but the fact no, that, that works. Yeah, I'll take you know <laughs> the, the fact that my podcast starts right at the hurt. I mean, what am no, I No, <laughs> and I think that's actually
0: a very good place to start because that's where the stuff is. That's where a lot of the big stuff is.
1: Sure. So it's fine.
0: I'm okay. I, I mean i I've written about it. I've talked about it. I've, you know, written about it in the New York Times, uh, which is a pretty public place to talk about your dysfunctional (laughs) family.
1: So no, I totally understand. And so I'm, I'm trying to get a a visual of kind of the household. And are you an only child? Were there any siblings in this mix as well? Or
0: well, this is (laughs) you need more than you need more than ninety minutes. I think
1: so. Yeah, (laughs) it's
0: it's a it's a big old mess. Okay, so they get married when they're she's only seventeen, and then they break up when I'm she's thirty, and she's this very glamorous single mom and I'm not around that much. There are no other children from that marriage. (laughs) Now you have to count them on your fingers. So after me, there is a sister I've never met who I don't want to meet. That's the result of an affair with a CBC script assistant and my dad. Then there's another half sibling who I have met who's 10 years younger, the result of another script assistant affair from the CBC. And then 23 years younger is a half brother who doesn't like me, we haven't spoken in 15 years. Yes, so so much for Thanksgiving. And he lives in D.C. and he has a couple of small children. So it's a very weird to call it a family is really a misnomer. It's a collection of adult children who my father in his dotage at 93 keeps saying like a broken record. I wish we could all be a family. Hmm. And my husband, who is a very tough guy, says in this words to my father, this is not going to happen. You have not created the conditions for it, which is completely true. I don't really have the guts to say that, but there's no way. I mean, I haven't even met this sister and she's nuts. By all accounts, I have zero interest in meeting this woman. I mean, it's a complete shit show. Yeah, no. It's a a great novel, but it's not a great family.
1: (laughs) No, it's. (laughs) you're telling it with so much breeze. (laughs) You're doing it so well. I'm kind of used to
0: it. I got to tell you, this is not news. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So if you don't mind, let's go back to uh, childhood, Caitlin. And I'm always wanting to know when art came into the picture that, I mean, you've obviously have enough fodder to write about for the rest of your life, right? This is true having the parents that seemed absentee, if that's an okay word to use. Absolutely. Okay. When, when does the spark of, I want to write when, when does, because I understand being surrounded, like you said, by the artifacts of art, the paintings or the pieces of music possibly, but then, yeah, when does this writing thing come into the picture for you?
0: So this is, this is pathetic, but true. So my (laughs) mom was a journalist. So don't forget. So I've come from a completely creative family. My dad's a filmmaker. My mom was a journalist. My stepmother who showed up later wrote for television. So I just grew up in this super family, it was completely normal to like sit at a typewriter for hours and smoke a lot of cigarettes. I don't smoke, but my stepmother did. It killed her, lung cancer. Yeah. Um, but there, this is this is true story. I'm such a weirdo. So I'm maybe six or seven, and I'm still with my parents. They're still together. And I decided to have a fun fair in the backyard. We had a beautiful, big backyard. Uh, and the idea of the fun fair was to make some money to buy a typewriter. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And I'm seven, right? Probably <laughs> yeah. because I see my mom banging away at typewriters and doing well and enjoying it. You know, I could see that my parents who were, you know, they were you know, funny and glamorous and attractive and having really interesting lives that they thought, shit, let's do that. Like, why would I want to do anything else than what they're doing? I could have made a lot more money. I should have done that. <laughs> um, but it was very clear that they really loved what they were doing. Uh, they were very good at it. There was an appetite for it. I think the most important thing that creatives struggle with, especially in America, I grew up in Canada, there's more government support for the arts. Um, is the fantasy you have to have a firm and fixed belief somebody out there wants you creatively. I grew up in a family that was wanted. now on we had years that weren't great. I remember this is a really powerful memory. my stepmother who I didn't love, um, very difficult person in some ways, but incredibly hardworking. She had never gone to university. Um, you know, she spent like a whole year coming up with like a TV series and worked her ass off and it didn't go. And I remember thinking, shit, but that was a really powerful lesson to learn as a teenager. You're like, well, I can kill myself and it still doesn't work. What the fuck am I going to yeah. do now? Yeah. I'm going to pick myself up and either do it again, or I don't know, go do something else. And you're not going to do anything else. If you're really a creative person without, you know, sweetening it up in a saccharine way, I think it's just who you are. You, you can't suddenly go not be creative. Even if the market says, piss off, which it sometimes does, Sure, which is really painful. Yeah.
1: I agree with that. It's a disease. Is it not a disease? I mean, <laughs> I just, I really appreciate you sharing all of this. And it leads me into, unfortunately, the last question of Circle One. Not not that the circles matter that much, but That's okay. you can yeah. obviously jump around. But to kind of conclude Circle One formally, yeah. the, the question for you is this, that it sounds like your parents, uh, father, film director, mother, journalist, was there a narrative that was put forth to you as a child of, "Hey, this is what adult life, quote unquote, should be"? Because it's coming across to me, right? I yeah. uh, okay, uh, listeners, she's yeah. in your head. No, no. So yeah, no,
0: not at all. Because not the at last all. observation yeah. I'll
1: say before you know turning over to you Please, is that. Yeah you're coming across, and this is not an indictment in any way, like kind of like a child of the industry, like a a young actor, right? Where I I don't want to name any names, but there's so many child actors that just, they become actors because their parents were famous actors, and that's just what it is. And they probably don't even think about becoming a plumber or, you know, anything else. And so, I'm wondering, was that a very similar sentiment for you? Like, was there... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it was just, you felt like you were going to be a writer or an artist of some kind?
0: And I need to add, so my aunt and uncle, who were Canadian, but they moved to Britain, were incredibly famous. I mean, my uncle would rent a villa in the south of France, and I spent my 17th summer there, and we went out for dinner every night, and we were absolutely mobbed all the time for autographs. They were very, very, very famous in radio and television in the 50s and 60s. So, Jose and I are working on a book about freelancing, which we can talk about or not. And we've each written three sample chapters, one of which is on ambition, and only in writing that chapter did I realize, to me, it's like oxygen. I mean, my entire family is very accomplished. My father won the d'Or at Cannes for documentary. Wow. You know, my aunt and uncle were incredibly famous. I'm just like, yeah, that's what we do. Like, we're highly accomplished, driven people. And that's just normal behavior for us. And that lesson's arrogant, but I don't care. It's kind of like, it's kind of just who we are in terms of our creative DNA. I was never told, be this, do that. You know, I would see my dad. This is a really powerful memory for me. So... This will tell you my age, but that's the end of it. You have to take it out. So my dad had come, my dad had gone to Tokyo for the Olympics in sixty four, and he brought back badges, fabric badges from the Tokyo Olympics. I was aware of Japan and intensely curious. What is this place? Where did you go? How did you get there? What are these cool objects? Wow. He brought me home sealskin mitts from the Arctic. He brought me home a caribou rug from the Arctic. He brought me home an Afghani rifle case, Afghan rifle case from Afghanistan. I mean, so he would keep bringing me these artifacts. From the world where he was out working, I was like, "Jesus Christ, let me at it!" Like, how could how could you not want to have this adventurous, global, exploring, storytelling life? It was never explicitly said to me. Like, you're just looking at it, going, "Oh, I want that." right? Like, I don't want to do anything else. I don't want a corporate job. And, you know, of course, there's real money there. But oh, well, (laughs) it's
1: (laughs) always about exposure. You know, I think that's that's no matter where you start. And for you, the exposure level was sky high, because as you said, that's what the family was. So I with that, we'll we'll roll into circle two. I feel like Caitlin, circle two of relationships has to do with the community where you were raised. So here in America, we like to say kindergarten through 12th grade, you know, but essentially, that's the ages five to 18. I know you already said you had grown up in uh, Vancouver is that correct
0: No so oh, this see, is I'm not okay listening so, as Yeah host. no so I'm bouncing around So I'm born in Vancouver to the age of 2 Okay and then we moved to England so my father's going to make films for the BBC I live in London ages 2 to 5 Okay which I don't remember and then we come back to Toronto and I live in Toronto ages 5 to 30 Got it so that's the sort of formational time that we're talking about Right but this is really important and part of my incredibly pain in the ass personality because I'm shipped off to boarding school at the age of 8 uh, I'm surrounded by strangers. Um, you know, a, a therapist once said, oh, well, who did you cry to when you were sad? And I'm like, what are you joking? There was no crying to be done. I mean, right. so you learn and it's a very British stiff upper lip thing. It's like, you know, it's like British people are so fucked up because they get sent to these very expensive, fancy boarding schools when they're very, very young. And. It literally changes you. I actually read a book called Boarding School Syndrome. I went like, "Oh, this explains a great deal about my behavior and my complete hatred of authority." Yeah. Um, which gets me in all kinds of trouble. Creatively, I think it's a huge strength, actually. We can talk about that.
1: Yeah, let's. Um,
0: so but you know, I'm in boarding school. I'm sharing a room with four strangers, I'm being yelled at by house mothers, then I go to summer camp all summer. I share a room with four strangers who become good friends. Camp saves me. Camp is my emotional salvation, because I'm always in trouble at school. I have, I'm have i winning all the awards. I mean, I'm top of my class in terms of grades, but because I'm always in trouble, you know, kids don't want to hang out with me. And I just get more and more trouble because my parents are never around. They are never to be found. Right. And at a certain point, you would like your parents to check in and say, how the hell are you? Because the people at school don't. They're there to make money and keep you safe and make sure you don't die. But they don't really care about you in any other meaningful way. And that's that. And that shapes you. Yeah. Because nobody, you know, the stuff that I'm sure many of your listeners like you come home and, you know, your mom says, sweetie, how was your day? Do you want a snack? Like this did not happen in my childhood. Uh, At four o'clock, a kid would go out and get a huge dark green basket full of cookies and bring it back for everybody in the house. And then you would get your name ticked off on a piece of paper to show you'd had your cookies. Everything was bells, like until say like, 65, 75, 725. I can still hear freaking bells when they rang and what they were. That's my childhood. So it's not what your listeners probably thought was normal, because it wasn't. It was yeah. normal for me. It was normal for me. <laughs> I
1: t- no, this is this is why we do the podcast, Kat. and And like I said, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm absolutely loving this. I want you to know that uh, because this, okay. this is different and unique from any other guest so far. I
0: imagine it probably is. Yeah, that's okay.
1: So just, uh, to, just to frame it for us, that was London. Uh, we're not going to say years, but uh, just okay. a name drop for us. So what was the name of that boarding school for most of those formative years? Which was the boarding school in London? So just it, to frame no, it. No, no, no. no. So
0: London's two to five. See? Then it's ter- then Toronto. 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 Having an off day, listeners. Keep going. No, no, it's fine. So I I go to the boarding school in grade four and it's called Branksome Hall. Okay. B R A N K S O M E Hall. It's in Toronto and it's still there and it's still going strong. So grades four, five, six, eight, and nine are Branksome. Got it. Grade seven is a Catholic mixed school in Montreal, which terrified me because it was A, was Catholic, which I'm not, and boys. And I hadn't been in a classroom with boys since third grade. And when you're 12, that's a pretty weird time to suddenly be exposed to boys again. And then I had no boys for grades eight and nine because I'm back in my private school and my summer camp is only women. So one of the things that's really, really foundational, and when I wrote the ambition chapter, it became very obvious to me in ways I hadn't really sat with. I was raised institutionally or educationally in single-sex environments. It has absolutely made me the woman I am, which is very feisty, very bossy, very confident, and nothing takes that away. Mm -hmm. And to a degree that people are like, where do you get that? I'm like... When you grow up around really smart, capable women in your school and in your camp, we had Olympians. I mean, everybody who led us was another woman. And then I became a leader within those settings. So why wouldn't you? And then you come into the world of God help you, men and women, you're like, what? Like the sexism and the bullshit and the bullying. I was very bullied in high school because I arrived in a co-ed high school and was massively bullied grade 10, 11, and 12 every single day. I was called Doglin. They barked at me. It was very unpleasant. Hmm. And years later, I reconnected with a very good friend from those years. I said, why was I the target? She didn't hesitate. She said, you were so confident you terrified everybody. Good. I still do.
1: (laughs) I feel so fortunate now that you want to be on this podcast and you didn't say (laughs) F off, man. That's fantastic. So the inevitable question I have for all of this, because this is a lot of years. It's a lot of different environments, a lot of different cities, countries around the world. Parents are absent. Children are bullying you. Who are the guardian angels in this? Please name some teachers for us. Name some other students. Wow. Who was that's the... a
0: That's a great question. This is like therapy, Valerie. Jeez, I'm gonna have it's, to send you a check. It's just the Circle Five <laughs>
1: podcast. Don't worry. Yeah, no, um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know. yeah. But is there are there any bright spots? I
0: mean, it sounds so silly and cliche. There were two camp counselors the summer I was thirteen, and this is really personal. I wasn't going to get suicide, but I sort of made noises to people about it because I, I was—I was just had it. I'm, my parents were just ignoring me constantly, and I really couldn't take it anymore. I mean, here I am, this super high-achieving kid. I'm really creative. I'm a lot of fun. I do have good friendships. Where the fuck are my parents? Right. And there were two camp counselors, and I still remember their names, and I remember them vividly, and they were just loving, funny, fabulous people. And they were huge for me because I remember just saying, like, well, what if I wasn't here? Like, I was just sort of, like, vaguely hinting, and I wasn't. Going to do it, but I felt really horrible. Hmm. And they just very lightly and gently and firmly said, Well, we'd really miss you. And I was like, Thank you. That's kind of all I needed to hear. Because when you're in school and you're constantly in trouble in boarding school and you go to high school and people, you know, hate you and yell at you, the boys, the girls like me, um, it's exhausting. Like it's really tiring. My family wasn't much help. Uh, We're not close. Like my aunt and uncle were in England. I never saw them. I don't have nieces and nephews. I lost both my grannies when I was 18. And that was really painful. And my British maternal, paternal grandmother was sort of quiet and pallid and didn't have a lot to do with her. She wasn't, she was sort of like a ghost or something. My maternal grandmother was just wacky. She was incredibly rich and very bossy. And she had like, you know, gold top canes and little furry dogs and a limousine driver named Raymond who came to the Christmas party. I mean, it was just, she was Auntie maine persona. Auntie maine was my role model. (laughs) She was very kind to me. And I would, it was too funny because she wasn't very nice to my mom. But she was very, very loving to me and not, she didn't bake. I mean, she wasn't like a granny. Like, you know, she would just give me a TV dinner. But that, in fact, was heaven because I would go on a Sunday night after boarding school. You have to sit at the table they tell you to. You have to sit at the place they tell you to. You have to eat the food they give you when they give it to you. I mean, I'm telling you, it is so rigid and institutionalized. And on a Sunday night, she'd make me a TV dinner and I'd get to watch TV, which we were not allowed to do at school. And that tiny gesture was huge for me. It was just the most loving. And I would fall asleep in the chair and think, okay, this is heaven. Because the one thing you can't get in that life is privacy. Privacy and solitude are really important creativity, which we should talk about.
1: They absolutely are. We definitely will get into that. Just to to round back to those two counselors, if yep. you would like to, just by first name, what were their names? I mean, you don't have to... Pat and Jane. All right, Pat and Jane. <laughs> just want to make sure Pat that if Jane. they hear this, they yeah, know yeah, that they yeah, were acknowledged. But yeah, no, God bless them. So similar to your Circle One, tons of fodder, right? We've got a lot that we can write about based on all these experiences. But how was art actually starting to manifest? Were you starting to do writing? You said winning awards. I mean, you were writing at this during all these uh, oh, ages yeah. of your life.
0: Yeah. So this is crazy, but true. So at our private school, which is ridiculous, but really formative, every year we had an essay writing contest and they would contest and they would put together grades four, five, and six to compete. Those are big age differences. Seven and eight, grade nine, 10, 11, and 12 and 13. We had a 13. And in grade eight, I won the essay writing contest, which is a big deal. Uh, And I self-plagiarized something I'd written in grade seven at Montreal. So welcome to being a writer, (laughs) which they didn't know because it's still my stuff. And then I went to high school and I was winning writing prizes there. I remember once we had an exam in grade 10 or 11 or 12, and the exam was write a poem, like in the time period of the exam. And it was pretty goddamn good. And people went nuts and accused me of memorizing it beforehand. I'm like, piss off. Like the one thing about being creatively successful and talented, and I know it sounds arrogant, people are really envious and people are really shitty. It's like, because they can't do it. Like, I don't care. That's your problem. You know, if I have that innate talent, like maybe you'll be a doctor, maybe you'll be a lawyer, maybe you'll be a firefighter. Like you have your set of skills and talents, which we don't articulate in our teens, but piss off and let me be me, you know? And yeah, I am confident. And I'm very proud of what I do. I don't run around going, oh, I won the poetry prize, whatever. I was thrilled to do it. But it was clear to me at the age of 12 or 13, I have some idea how to write in ways that are useful. I was also acting at summer camp. We used to do musicals and I used to get the lead every summer. So singing and dancing and acting. I played my guitar and talent show. I would write songs. I would sing them to 200 people. So I was very creatively fulfilled at summer camp. There was a lot of love and a lot of respect and admiration for the ability to get up in front of an audience and pull it off. And that's huge when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, especially if your parents aren't around to know that other people love you and respect you and go, wow, she was terrific in the lead of, you know, guys and dolls or whatever we were doing that summer. So there are other people in other places that were saying, stick with it. You know, if my parents weren't noticing or paying attention, well, other people did. Thank God.
1: That's fantastic. Yeah.
0: Because you need encouragement, right? You need somebody to know. You have to.
1: Yeah. I think it's just human nature. You need that affirmation. Otherwise, like, why are you doing it? Uh, Caitlin, I I cannot believe we are already at the end of Circle number two. We'll take a break right here. Listeners, I hope you're having a great time. I know I am. Caitlin Kelly's story is so fantastic. This is the Circle 5 podcast, and we'll be right back after this. Hello and welcome back to the Circle 5 podcast. Caitlin, how are you feeling? Good. Still here. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. All right. Let's go ahead and move into the next circle, which is obviously circle number three. Circle number three involves college years, higher education, jobs that were not artistically related or any kind of social groups that you have in the world, whether that's like church or yoga, those sort of things. So we can start with higher education because I'm sure you can speak on all of those things. Okay. Uh, but let's start with uh, higher education. Obviously, all these boarding schools. But then did you end up in obviously, yeah, you must have ended up in higher education. Please let us know where and yep. what that experience experience was like
0: so it was only one boarding school and then they kicked me out after grade nine so now they Mm. keep coming after me for money and I finally told them to piss off I wrote to the principal I said you have to stop um I went to University of Toronto which is our basically Harvard it's the hardest school to get into and it's really hard to get through and they don't mess around and why did I go there because my father being my father said I won't pay for anything else and then didn't pay for it anyway it was incredibly cheap it was $600 a year a year because it's Canada. And then because I'm old, um, it's now still like 6000 a year. It's incredibly cheap because it's heavily subsidized. So right. there's a very different attitude in Canada towards higher education. It's a much more level playing field, which I really believe in. I didn't like university. My mom had to bribe me to keep going. I was really lonely. I was really broke. I was living alone in a, in a studio apartment in a bad neighborhood. And I got attacked in the apartment and I had to move. Mm. And my parents were literally a million miles away. I think my mom was in Peru and my dad was in France and there were no cell phones or internet and it was not a ton of fun. And it's a huge school. It's 53,000 students. So nobody gave a shit. I could have just disappeared and literally nobody would have noticed like unless they found my body or something. So that wasn't great. Um, And it's really hard to like show up at a really demanding university and do like amazing work. I was at home in my first year of university and got straight A's because I'm pretty smart and I can work hard. And I had an amazing moment, a really formative moment in freshman English class, <clears throat> which is a small class, maybe 20 people. And I used to sit in the back and read the paper because I'm an asshole. And the professor was very erudite. He spoke like, you know, eight languages. And And I did a pretty amazing essay where you guys would call a paper. And he literally stood up in front of the class and said, this student wants to be a writer and she's chosen wisely. And I'll never forget that because that was huge from a guy at his level. And I still remember the paper. It was about chaos or the inchoate in... um. Heart of Darkness. So, there you go, uh, which I'm sure everybody did in high school. But anyway, so that was, so university was very problematic for me. The Canadian system is very different. And so, what happens in the Canadian system is we have to choose a major like within 20 seconds. Mm. So, what you guys kind of dick around and do like, you know, acting and like pottery, and then you go to grad school, we do something very different. You have to choose your major by second year. So, my, so all I ever did was English, French, and Spanish. So, I'm like, Because I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I wanted to speak fluent French and fluent Spanish and work in both, which I later did. But it meant I didn't get to study much of anything else. So I studied one political science and one philosophy, which I enjoyed. I worked at the college newspaper and that's where I got the clips, you know, and where there's the articles that got me into national magazines at 19 because I had a ton of really well-written stories because that was my goal. I was so completely driven, surprise, uh-huh. before school started, before the first week of my first year of the university, I called the school paper. I said, don't start without me. <laughs> and I came running down and I went out and started interviewing other freshmen. And they're like, wow, what year are you? And I said, I'm a freshman just like you but it immediately gave me an identity and a voice and and a place to go and like i would sit and write my papers back in the day of typewriters in the newsroom i would have all my books lined up so i couldn't reach the typewriter and all my reference books were like anyway so <laughs> it was university was really hard it was um it was lonely i was gone most of the time freelancing i missed a lot of classes um you know i would run into people years later and they would say hey how are you and i'm like hey and i think who like, are you? They're like there was a guy I met once at a party he's like, do you remember me? And I was, like, I guess we dated. I don't remember anything. Because I was so busy freelancing, I could barely have time for school. I had to make money. Yeah. My father had freaking disappeared. I had three hundred and fifty dollars a month to live on.
1: Wow. No uh, I-
0: and half of that was my rent. So you can do the math. Oh,
1: my goodness.
0: Yeah. I yeah. Jesus. <laughs> It's fine.
1: No, I'm it's. A, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm a
0: survivor. <laughs> I love I
1: can tell listeners, if you can't figure that out yet. I mean, Caitlin's yeah. with it. So yeah. uh, we already talked about it during the break that you've got to come back because there's just so many avenues we can go down so many more stories and experiences I would like to hear about. But I need to take a little bit of a left turn here in uh, Circle Three, because I try to do some homework as I should, you know, on my guests. And you wrote an entire book dedicated to your life in retail. And yep. it was called MAULED. So yep. that obviously would fall right into circle three this is work that is not directly artistically related so all and it's you've led us there pretty naturally that you've told us all these great accolades from writing and being young but now you've had this experience and break into being in retail can you please let us know about that experience. How did it even happen? And yep. what what did you kind of learn in, during that time? And yeah.
0: <laughs> Man, humility, with capital H. So it happens much later in life. And I'd had this job at the New York Daily News. I'm making really good money. It's the sixth largest newspaper in America. It's a really big deal. It's a horrible place. They hate me. They don't want me. They're basically trying to get rid of me. So it's not a good experience. And then they fire me on a Wednesday at three o'clock and tell me I'm not productive. Two weeks after I have had the entire front page, which is called the wood. So nice try. (laughs) Um, so now I need to go get another job and I'm not young at that point. And I'm like, oh shit. And journalism's already falling off a cliff because it's already oh six. And yeah, technically the recession hits at oh eight in journalism, it's already starting. Mm. Uh and I send out something like 50 resumes in a month and I don't get a single reply because I decide I'll do PR. I speak French and Spanish, I've got my global stuff, nobody wants me. We just needed cash. And you know, I don't have a lot of pride about stuff. I'm pretty practical. I'm like, okay, I just need cash every week. How am I gonna do that? Waitressing, eh, did it. Don't want to do it again. And then the North Face, which is this, this fancy clothing store, was opening in a mall 10 minutes from our house. So I thought, well, shit, I can do that. You know, I'm very practical. So I've traveled the world, I speak two languages, and I'm a jock. So perfect fit for the brand. I'm not a brand person. I don't own their stuff. I'm just like, but that's a fit for me in all kinds of good ways. Let me go see. Jesus, you want humbling. And I walk in for the interview, and I'm aware that I'm, you know, incredibly overqualified. So I do a one sheet resume with my transferable skills. Because the bottom line is this, <laughs> a journalist does exactly what a sales associate does. We make strangers comfortable in seconds. And if you can't, you're shitty at your job. And so I was a very good salesperson. I sold quite well. And they put it on the wall, like, like what your hourly sales are. And that's something I actually liked initially is it's very practical. You see immediately the value that you add to this company because in journalism, there's no way to know. It's why we're all so expendable and treated like crap because you could be on front page one day and then you're not. And then, oh, am I worth less? Am Mm. I worthless? I mean, it's a very punitive industry. Retail is very punitive, but it's also kind of clarifying because you know how much you sold that hour that day. Oh, I made $20 an hour less than Joe. All right, I'm going to go catch him. It was a great lesson in how incredibly shitty Americans are to people who work low-wage jobs. I had a plastic badge on with my name and a uniform, and I was writing for the New York Times at the same time, freelance. And people would lean over the computer and try to spell the name of their town because I couldn't possibly be literate. Wow. It was very, very insulting. Uh, I went to the stockroom one day and cried because the guy was just such a prick. I couldn't take it. Uh, And I really don't cry much, as you can imagine. At its best, it was a lot of fun. Initially, I really enjoyed it. It's a day a week. It wasn't every day. And in the holidays, I would work three days a week, get, get more money. And it was actually kind of funny because people go nuts. Like, basically, on Thanksgiving Day, people lose their fucking minds you know this guy came in i'll never forget we're going back you know 15 years this guy comes in and goes what should i get for my daughter i thought well fuck she's your daughter you should know (laughs) which of course you can't say right Right. And, and so you have to be the way bartenders are like really kind of empathetic and on there and like catch their vibe and then sell them some shit it you know so in some ways it's very similar to journalism you have to like vibe with them really fast. So they feel comfortable. And then you have to sell them some shit, uh, which I was usually (laughs) able to do. And it was an amazing array of customers. I mean, my God, we had Icelandic tourists. I had some representative of like a Saudi prince who was going to go to Cornell and it's really cold and there's no snow in Saudi Arabia. And What ski jacket should I get? I mean, I had a boy scout going to camp. So I loved the variety. Again, like journalism, I was dealing with everybody. And I really enjoyed that. The actual work for the company, no, 11 bucks an hour, no commission. Give me a break.
1: Right, right. And it's grueling work. I don't want to step on your answer, but I my gut is saying the word is just maturity and doing what you have to do. But what I experienced when I was doing jobs that were not related to art is that this little fireball kept burning inside of me because I wasn't being an artist. So as many times as I can, I'm gonna to mention Tony Morrison's name in this podcast where she said something to the effect, one of her great quotes is that that's the only place where she feels free is when she was writing. So it doesn't quite sound like you were confined by because it, it wasn't that much time. But did you feel any sense of confinement while you were in this experience? But it sounds like you didn't. But can you speak to that? Of like, damn it, I w- I wish I was out of here and just oh, write sure. it. okay? Oh, sure, no, okay. absolutely, I did. Whew, thanks for bailing me yeah, out. Yeah, no, okay. no. So,
0: okay, listen. Realistically, people are treating you like you're absolutely stupid. It was shocking to me. You know, I came to this country and I was thirty years old with all the sort of optimism naivete of the fresh immigrant. Like, it's happening. A little of opportunity. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. And I'm glad I'm here, but my God, you know, you want to work retail, that's going to snap you right out of it. The way that people treat you is so contemptuous and so rude. And the assumption was that nobody on our staff at 15 had even attended college When in fact, we had a military veteran of the special forces. So frankly, to be very honest, yeah, I needed to keep writing to retain a sense of identity other than this crap that people are flinging you across the counter, which was contemptuous and rude and very demeaning. I was very clear who I was, why I was there. It was $250 a month, which I can assure you then was gas and groceries. Now it's not even like a week's groceries, but it was real money then. And I was glad to have it and we needed it and I had no shame. And this is really important. Because the the daily news was really toxic and they were extremely unkind. I literally, my boss will literally refuse to speak to me for six months, Mm. would not speak to me. And you walk into an open newsroom where everybody sees you being treated like this. Bullying in high school was like a warm bath compared to this. So the job at the store, ironically, was soul saving because it gave me a place that I was valued. Customers liked me, the staff liked me, my boss liked me. I liked how I performed. I could just go have a separate identity at least a day a week where I was liked. Because when you come out of a place where you are so actively being pushed out, you just need a place where it's just, it's, it's just a job. Yeah. And so there is no emotional attachment to it. It's money, it's a paycheck. I'm glad to have it. And it turned into a fantastic book. So it <sighs> worked out. Um but No offense to Toni Morrison, God bless her, but I don't feel that way about writing. I don't have this. I have to write every day.
1: Okay. I don't have to
0: write every day because I have to, and I've tweeted this recently. I have to think every day, but that doesn't mean I have to write anything because unless you slow down long enough to like think, Jose and I are putting together a book proposal. An agent has it. She better freaking buy it (sighs) on freelancing. One of our sample chapters is on ambition. And it was really enlightening to read, to really sit down and go, how do I feel about ambition? And one of the things is, I guess I'm pretty relentless. And I also just take for granted, it's what you do, regardless of like the part-time retail job. I was ambitious in that job. I think it's just kind of who I am. You know, I think when I'm dead, I probably won't be, but we'll see.
1: <laughs> no, that- that would... I could be an
0: ambitious ghost.
1: <laughs> Haunts better than anybody That's else. That's the
0: title <laughs> of my memoir, <laughs> Ambitious Ghost." <laughs>
1: I will buy it immediately. And (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Wow. I, gosh, only one last question for Circle 3. That was amazing, first of all, that response. So thank you for that. Because it sounds like you turned lemons into lemonade. I mean, that's essentially the trite, you know, cliche. But that's exactly what you did. So thank you for that response. And you taught me something in that. Uh, The last thing I've got for Circle 3, what's the escape for you? Are there any social groups in your life that are absolutely have nothing to do with art? You can put all that creativity away for just a minute and just go have some fun with a group of people. What is that for you and and your circle three, Caitlin?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's two, one of which is now doesn't work because my joints are a mess. Mm -hmm. So, I've been playing co-ed softball for more than 20 years with a group of people that involve doctors and lawyers and iron workers and bakers and this co-ed gang. I'm not playing as much as I used to, but that has been a huge place of joy and comfort and friendship for a long time. I just run into one of my um, softball people outside the gym where I go to spin class three times a week. That's my other thing right now. Those are the two big things. Uh, and it was just so wonderful to see him because we have 20 years of history together. And he, he was a psychiatrist and a professional pianist at the same time. So to me, it's just really important that you do have other things. I don't have hobbies. I keep trying to think of getting a hobby. Um, <laughs> But socially, spin class is great. I mean, I need to like, I'm constantly, you know, fighting my weight and I need to burn off stress, but I also need to be social. And especially with COVID, it's very, very, very painful and very difficult because we're all scared of dying. So I actually spin in a mask, which is extremely uncomfortable. Um, And then I take it off. And then after class, I have really cool long conversations there's a guy who spins who's a, formerly with a very large law firm he's a very interesting bright guy and another guy who was a, a speechwriter for one of the uh, governors and he's had an amazing career they're just lovely interesting men so we just down and we'll talk for an hour after class i'm very grateful for that because it's social and it's exercise and it's yeah but i'm not a i'm not a joiner it's i was i was going to church for a while and it just was never a very good fit people used to keep saying to me the following phrase are you still writing and I wanted to punch them. Oh, okay. Like it's yeah. not macrame, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God. Because it's a very corporate crowd. They didn't understand it at all.
1: I totally... Thanks again for the honesty. This has been such a great episode. I cannot believe we're going to roll into Circle 4. And I've honestly, okay. I've been looking forward to Circle 4 because of the information about uh, who you are married to that you gave me well before this episode. So, Circle, okay. four, <laughs> circle 4 is love life. And okay. even before we talk about your husband, who you've already brought up. So, we've already answered question number one of your relationship status. You are currently married. But I'd like to start retrospectively, though, because you mentioned something really fascinating in your school years about how it was not very co-ed. It would flip-flop. It would be mainly girls, then co-ed, then back to just girls. So, if you don't mind talking about it. i mean if you're up for circle for yeah. love life kind of talk of sure. how did you then find your way to dating and kind of exploring that but po- yeah, exactly.
0: yeah. well, <laughs> no, let's see this this becomes the x-rated part of <laughs> Uh-oh. your Uh-oh. podcast Yeah. so i'm bullied in high school you know i'm like, like you know i have acne and i don't dress very well because like i'm a nerd and whatever and then i get to university of toronto which Suddenly, it's like a boy fest. Like everybody wants to date me. I'm like, I'm sorry, because like people in high school hated me, and like as friends would say to me, I was going through boyfriends like chocolates, toilet paper, or cigarettes—probably all three—which is to say, very quickly and in great masses of consumption, um which I really enjoyed. <laughs> you asked, I'm answering. Uh, this is great, yeah. <laughs> I I am not somebody who dates for like. Like, like if I give you, I don't know, a month, that's really a long time. When I got married to my first husband, we'd been together, I think six months. And my friends were all like, Jesus Christ, who's this guy? Like nobody had ever gotten six months out of me. And we and I had discussed marriage as soon as we met. That was in Montreal. But yeah, dating, and it's very, so this is very blunt and true. So University of Toronto was like, I just got to get through it. Like I'm freelancing constantly. I don't really have time for a boyfriend. It's not going to be useful or helpful. Right. Like boys are fun and you know, sex is fun, but that's it. That's it's fun. There's nothing more than, I don't have time for more than that. Yeah. Um, And then I'm starting in my twenties, I'm working at the Globe and Mail, which is a very, very, very difficult competitive place, not a friendly, friendly, fun place. And I'm dating some guys here and there and they're all sort of fun and wacky. And, Whatever. But the truth is this I wanted to come to New York and I had known that since I was 16. 16. And I'm now in like 26, 27, 28. I can't date anybody seriously. And this is a very personal answer. I cannot date somebody seriously because I'm going to be leaving. Mm -hmm. And because I'm ambitious and driven and want to be with somebody who is ambitious and driven and talented, that person isn't going to follow me to New York. They're going to be very implanted in Toronto or in Montreal. So I'm screwed. So it's, it's got to be Mr. Right Now. There were a lot of Mr. Right Now's. Um some of which are very much Mr. Wrong now, um, <laughs> but good anecdotal material. Let that's me tell fantastic. you, I've got a whole chapter in my memoir on that one called Some Men.
1: Um, I'm going to leave in so, all my little cackles, by the way. <laughs> that's okay. Cackles, you leave them
0: yeah, in. Yeah. So this so is my dating life till I'm 30 years old. And then in all seriousness, I'm like, okay, I want to get married. I don't want kids. I never wanted kids, but I want a husband. I want somebody who loves me and is there for me, especially with my shitty family that's never there for me. Right. I want some stability. And I fall madly in love in Montreal with an American med student who's in his last year at McGill. And we later get married. They get divorced. We moved to New York. Didn't work out. But I fell head over heels. Um, You know, he was brought to my housewarming party. I had just arrived in Montreal. Coming to the Montreal Gazette It was a huge change for me. I'd never left Toronto permanently. That was very frightening. And there he was. And he was handsome and smart and played guitar and played clarinet. And it was just wonderful. I mean, I was very in love. And we talked about marriage immediately. And then years later, we got married in 92. He walked out in 94, very painful, Mm. and ran off with somebody he's still married to. Mm. That was not fun. However, I don't regret it. You know, what are you going to do? Shit happens. I have a lovely second husband, so that worked out. But yeah, no, the whole romance dating thing was not, it took me a long time to realize I'm very much my father's daughter. Because he's a real, as the Canadians say, he's a real stick man. And I was kind of a female stick man. Like I was just having a good time. And I probably broke a few hearts, which always shocked me. I was like, I'm sorry, what? You're in love with me? Like what? (laughs) Which maybe they were. Like it didn't occur to me that that was, maybe because my family is so weird and not there. Um, But people would do like incredibly romantic things. And I'd be like, Thank you. Like somebody gave me a a record album back in the days of vinyl in white tissue paper, and he had written all over the tissue paper. I think it was like poems or something. I was like, Eric, what? Remember his name at least? Yeah. So that was touching but confusing. Like, because it's like no, because I'm I'm moving ahead here. You know? Yeah. And so I probably looked terrible to these poor men, but I knew what I wanted, and I wanted an amazing career, and that's what happens.
1: No, that that totally makes a lot of sense, and you know, this is a question I've been asking everybody. It's. Was there a type? I mean, because to me, the through line was your ambition. I'm going to move <laughs> on. But yeah, like I said, it's a bit of a reductive question. But all these different types of men that you're meeting or just dating briefly or whatever you're doing with them briefly. You know, it's well, like, what, did, did it matter to you if that person was a brilliant artist or he could have been well, a garbage man? I mean, it did. Well, yeah, was, well was, I'll give
0: you a couple of examples. Okay. So one of them. <laughs> well this was way back in university he was much 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 older it was like a one night thing okay uh, he was a very famous artist and his work ended up on a stamp which is pretty cool. loved his work yeah he drowned in brownsville so that was sad hmm. uh another one designed the cn tower that was pretty interesting um and we later dated and he proposed and i broke his heart and he lives two towns away i ran into him the other day i'm like oh shit, here he is That's not awkward. so you could so you could never <laughs> get away um it was interesting so i was a magazine editor in the mid nineties and making a lot of money. And I dated a guy who literally ran a shit ship around the Harbor. He was a Naval and he had a Naval, Naval architecture and degree, but he made literally 50% of what I made. And it was interesting because everybody was like, why are you dating him? Well, he was really cute. He was really nice. He was an amazing sailor. We met sailing. I used to be a very active racing sailor on people's boats. Uh, And he was a sweetie. So no, I didn't, you know, like the guy who designed the same tire, the guy who runs a shit ship. As long as you're smart and interesting and a nice person, I, I don't
1: really care. Right. Having
0: said that, my husband is a Pulitzer and I brag on him constantly. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> You segued into I that do. so perfectly. <laughs> no, I, you know, I'm incredibly proud
0: of him because yeah. his background was not wealthy, was not connected. He worked his little buns off all the way from small town New Mexico to the freaking New York Times. And he's the only person I've ever met. And this is important. In my entire life, he's the only person I've ever met who did exactly what I did in our undergraduate years we were freelancing for national publications undergrad he in New Mexico me in Toronto of course we end up married are you kidding who else are we gonna yeah
1: marry? <laughs> yeah no that was that was such a beautiful segue and let's obviously talk about your husband his name is Jose Lopez Jose Lopez and he's a a Prize winner, everyone. We're just going to make sure that we yep, got yep, that in the yep, air yep, <laughs> before we continued because yep. Caitlin made a big deal of that. Well, I will make I'm a big deal proud of him. that. Yeah, we should all be very proud of him. That's quite a prestigious award for anyone in journalism, music, you name it. So, how did you, you already started telling us the story? But, yeah, talk us through the rest of it. How did you all meet? And then it was like, yeah, we're, let's do this. It's
0: very funny. So, of course, it's through journalism. I'm married. my marriage breaks up after two years. I'm single for six or seven years. I date a whole bunch of weird people. And then because I've dated a bunch of weird people online, back when nobody was doing online dating, it was very declassé. People wouldn't talk about it. Now it's in the times it's like everybody does it. So my sort of shtick as a writer is I'll always go do stuff that's embarrassing. Then I'll write about it because other people are too embarrassed. I don't care. It's money and let's tell a good story. So I went to Mademoiselle magazine. It was a big national women's magazine. And said, so I'm doing this online dating thing. Why don't I write about it for you guys? I said, I've dated a bunch of charming liars and let's talk. And they're like, okay, do two more services. So compare four different services. So one of them is AOL.com. Didn't use them at all. Didn't know anything about it. That's where Jose lurks. So they keep calling me saying, how's it going? How's it going? Because I've got a beautiful photograph, a portrait taken by Family Circle. I mean, I looked amazing. My headline said, catch me if you can. Very truthful. And it really kind of dropped it. Um, profile. It was kind of rude because I hate dating. Anyway, Jose saw it because they made it profile of the day. I couldn't believe it. They put it on the homepage of AOL. Every AOL user in the world got to see it, including him. And so, 200 people apply, <laughs> and he's in the top 50. And I always tell him, "You're lucky in the top 50 because I stopped reading." <laughs> and that's how we meet. And yeah. and we we get you know we immediately start emailing. We're on the phone within three or four days. We're laughing our asses off. You know, he's working at the time. But we immediately have stuff in common, of course. Um, We're both divorced with no kids. We didn't want kids. And there was a lot of stuff immediately. It was like, this is a potential click. And we met in March of 2000. And that was it. I mean, we've been together ever since. It's crazy.
1: No, it's beautiful.
0: We fought like cats and dogs for the first two or three years. It was very, very, very tough (laughs) because we're very tough and we're very competitive. And that's hard in midlife. You know, we can talk about that. And if we do our book, we're going to talk about being a married couple who is creative because... Yeah, sometimes he's doing a lot better. And I'm just like, you know, like it's hard not to be envious. You know, like I want to be doing better. And at that particular moment, I am not.
1: No, that's, you you already, you answered what was going to be my next question. So actually, I want to bring up something that you had talked to me about during the ride. This isn't quite Circle 4 stuff, but I want to ask it and then I will close out Circle 4. But is it okay to throw the idea out in the airwaves? Because you were describing for me something you wanted to do with your husband that has to do with the alphabet, right? This is ringing bells. Yes. And if you'd like to to go ahead and start describing that, because I found it very fascinating and I thought it was really great that you're planning on doing it with your husband.
0: Well, thank you. I just hope we get an agent and a publisher like now. Yeah. So it's basically a freelancer's alphabet. Uh, And if anybody listens to this and steals it, we will kill you, don't do that. (laughs) Don't worry, my my, my
1: listeners are, it's not that popular just yet, but go ahead. (laughs) Okay, all right, seriously, no. So the
0: idea is to look at the underpinnings of the emotional stuff that makes you successful as a freelancer yes a creative person but a freelancer who could be doing you know it or university user experience like it doesn't have to be like a creative field it's what does it take to get up in the morning on a monday morning and go my monthly overhead is $5000 where's that money coming from uh and it takes a lot of emotional intelligence and we break it down literally a to z um and the a is ambition and the final z is zeitgeist um and then there's a lot in the middle so we've done three or four sample chapters We write them in our own voice because we're very different people. And I think if we can sell this, which I really hope we can, our differences, and I think this is a really interesting thing to talk about, our differences come out of our childhood. He's Hispanic. I'm not. He's American. I'm Canadian. Uh, We have some very profound differences. Sometimes it can be quite difficult in the way that we are very different. But that also makes for an interesting conversation about being creative and what helps you be better at being creative. And he is Meticulous. I am not. He is very detail oriented. I am not. I'm not sloppy, but I can't stand detail. I'm the big picture person and always have been. I don't want to do like the, like, drives trust me, nuts. But he's very, very good at that. The one anecdote, which you'll appreciate, and I'm just going to drop a dime. Go ahead. Because he's very tidy. We started <laughs> dating and he goes, Your closets are messy. I'm like, You're a dick. <laughs> That's all that And is. here we here we are all these years <laughs> later, very happy. But yeah, like that, we're different in that way. Like, and he's very he's very tolerant as I'm talking to you. I mean, I literally have this huge pile of newspaper, which your readers, listeners can't see, but like, yeah, I mean, okay. everywhere yeah. I look, there's piles of papers and magazines and books, and he's very kind and lets me be a slob. He says, oh, you're creative. I'm like, I'm a slob, but thank you.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's really, thank you for that anecdote. Um, and again, I described you early on as brilliant. That is a fair word, and okay. I'm not going to apologize for it. And so I would imagine your husband probably floats somewhere in that brilliant range as well. And so as you just described it, it's like you all know each other so well, you know what your strengths and weaknesses are, you're differences, I should say. Uh, my question is kind of this, is there an intellectual safe word for you all? If you all are collaborating together or thinking or, or maybe not it's even arguing, but you know what I mean? Like you're just maybe in the heat of being creative or in the heat of both of your be- being brilliant, you know, is there some break and someone that signals that or some way that you all stop and say, look, let's detach from us being artists right now. And now we're a married couple. Let's go do this other thing. Does that happen for you? Or is that something you all even kind of are mindful That's of? That's such
0: an interesting question. No, because we're just... We just kind of are the way we are. like okay. <laughs> like, like, Jose, like, Jose is just amazing. So, we went out yesterday. We saw um, the Broadway show, Come From Away. Nice, yeah. And I cried so hard, I could barely breathe. I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And God bless him. So did he, because we covered 9-11 as journalists. So, it mm. was actually really painful. And I love the show, and I've seen it twice, and I'll just cry some more. But um, as we were coming home, it's at about an hour drive back from Midtown, New York City. And he had this amazing idea. And he just said, why don't we do this? And I was like, Fuck, yeah. And he already sent the email to the person. He It's a collaboration. We want to try with a Canadian who's really, really good at what he does. And I was like, shit, can we really do this? He's like, yeah, we can do this. I'm like, okay. But we were joking in the car because he said, he says, every time I have an idea, you're like, let's make it happen. And then he sort of like goes, I have to. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> and so there's an incredible joy for me. I mean, I've never... You know in all those stupid other relationships, even my first marriage, he was a doctor. There was nothing in mm. that kind of partnership that way. And you know, he made a lot of money and he was very distant in all those ways. And and Jose and I are constantly like talking and joking, and you know, oh, I just read something in the Times, or I just read something in the FT, and like, oh, what did you see? On like, like he'll say to me, like, you know, what did you see in the paper that was interesting? And and it might spark a conversation, or I listen to BBC or NPR. So there's always a conversation. To be honest, it's that's a really interesting question, but I don't see a break in there.
1: Okay, it's just who you are.
0: And like, like yeah, it's just kind of it just keeps going. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we 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 talk. He's around the corner. He can hear the whole thing. So um, (laughs) we talk a lot. We laugh a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, our our one our one phrase, our one catchphrase, which is really really important if you're a couple listening to this, yeah, is can I talk to you? And it's really important because he is around the corner on a computer working for the times as we speak. I'm sitting here on a laptop in the living room. It's a one bedroom. And the biggest thing that we're very careful about is um, being respectful of time and space in a small space. You have to. And that's huge. I think a lot of people get really resentful and, and like they're constantly like interrupting you. You're like, you can't be creative if you're interrupted yes like you just can't
1: no i we're definitely going to speak about that because you've brought that up twice now so thank you for that answer i I, thank you for that I, i i hear it it's like it's a river that flows of all this intelligent work and every once in a while there's some spontaneity in there and i think that's a really beautiful beautiful thing uh the last circle four question is always a silly one um you know I'll just ask part two of the question which is about the word I'll say the word crushes Caitlin do you have any celebrity crushes past or present oh, that's interesting. is there anybody yeah. out in the world that you just said oh man that's that's the person for you was it you know I don't know I don't even want to take any guesses but any uh, any celebrities in terms out, of their
0: yeah in just, terms of their talent yeah just, you mean?
1: just the old-fashioned meaning of the word crush any celebrities out there that you're like "Ooh, that <laughs> Caitlin's making a hmm. face of not really
0: <laughs> well I don't know it might be a long mean Uh, jeremy irons maybe yeah Um, throw
1: some names out there
0: well that's real well i suppose i suppose i mean in terms of just like dissy boys i mean yeah he he would be up there ray fines i mean Rafe Rafe fines in the english patient that's it you're done okay just i'm done i'm cooked see you later (laughs) um you know he's carrying the dead body out of the cave weeping you're like okay that's it thank you i'm done and everybody laughs at me and i'm like no no it's really sad they're like it's bullshit i'm like no it's really sad um talent wise crush Uh, very specifically, Twyla Tharp, who is a choreographer. And I have her book on my shelf, and it's one of my Bibles. And I wrote her a letter uh, in my early 20s because I wanted to be a choreographer. I knew it wasn't going to happen. And she just wrote me back and said, like, yeah, do it. It was like, you know, perky, like no answer. But at least she replied. You know, I was this nothing burger person in Canada. And then really important, and this is a literary crush. I wrote letters to Ray Bradbury and to John Cheever, and they both wrote me back. So I actually have handwritten replies from the two legends of American Come writing.
1: On. That's I wrote fantastic. to Bradbury
0: when I was 12 at summer camp, and I wrote to John Cheever when I was in my 20s. And I was incredibly honored that they even bothered to acknowledge me. Oh, my yeah. goodness. So yeah. So those are my crushes. They're more intellectual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're intellectual yeah. crushes. And
1: then on top yeah. of that, I had a feeling I was like, you probably have connected with them and you have. <laughs> so that's brilliant. I think that's a great place. We're going to end Circle Four there. More with Caitlin Kelly after this. Thanks for listening to the Circle Five podcast. Bye. Hello and welcome back to the Circle Five podcast. Caitlin, you still with me? Yep. Yeah, she's there. Okay, we are heading into the namesake of the podcast. That is Circle Five. Caitlin, the fifth circle of relationships is all about creativity professionally. What are the connections? Do you have any Mm -hmm. collaborators? That sort of thing. You've been talking about that the entire time. You've had such a robust career. You've been working for a long time. Sounds like since your college years. So if you don't mind, we're gonna fast forward to the present And that is um, what we talked about in your bio and your intro, that you were essentially a coach for other writers. So if you don't mind, I'd like to focus on that for your Circle 5 time. And yeah, please let us know the story of that. How did that begin? How did you start that and start making the connections to become essentially a writing coach?
0: Totally randomly. I'm trying to think Like I'm not being elusive. I can't remember how it started. And I don't do a lot of marketing. Like I'm just sort of on Twitter a lot and being myself on Twitter. And I, you know, I go to conferences and I speak at conferences and people seem to like what I say. And so I'm seen as, you know, somebody knows what they're doing because I do. It's been really interesting. I really really love it. It's not a huge amount of income. I mean, it's, you know, 10% of my annual income at most, but I really love it. I wish it was a lot more. It's really gratifying. It's, you know, I charge by the hour. We really do an hour at a time. It's really like being sort of a therapist for another writer. Now, not writers of fiction or poetry, that's not it. It's only journalism or content marketing or book proposals or essays, anything like that. And it's fascinating because people are so different and you really have to be you know, present for them in a way. Like I had a lady the other day and she was really nice. And after the first session, I was like, more not a fit. And she came back and wanted more. And I just wrote her and I, it's the first time I've ever done it. And I said, I said, you know, I wish you the best, but this is not a fit for me. The kind of writing you want to focus on is not what I do. And it's clear. You made clear to me. I say to her, you were like, want to stay in your comfort zone. And I said, I don't believe in that. It's not what I'm here to do. So I really like it. I'm very honored because it takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of trust to show your work to another writer. You know, we've got our book proposal, which we sent to four of our very good friends that we really trust and like for their beta read. And they were luckily very enthusiastic, but it takes a lot of trust to say, here's my best or here's what I hope is my best or here's what I think is my best. Can you make it better? And it's always an hour. And I say every sort of 15, 20 minutes, is this working for you? Is this what you expected? Is this giving you something that's useful? And luckily, nobody's ever said no. And what I really, really appreciate, almost every person I work with says, Wow, I never thought of that or I never saw it this way. And that to me is a huge compliment because basically what you're being is sort of a, an extra brain, fresh eyes, fresh ears. Uh, we all need that. I need that. I mean, I, you know, where we, we wrote a book proposal, I knew immediately we needed other eyes on this thing. You know, this is our iteration. This is our idea. This is our enthusiasm. Well, other people might be like, mm, I don't think so. And before we wrote the proposal, which just went out last week, I was talking to friends all over California on my big trip through California where we met. Right. And most of them are fellow writers. And I said, what do you think of this idea? And one of them, several said to us, it has to be granular and it has to be really personal. So that has really much informed the way that we've written it. We'll see if an agent likes it or a publisher wants it. um, But that was really helpful. So I'm always turning to other people. I mean, I think any ambitious creative person has to be turning to other people maybe at your level, sometimes younger, the age doesn't matter. It's just fresh ears, fresh eyes, fresh insights. I'm fine with that. You know, we all need help. We all need a sounding board, right?
1: No, I couldn't agree more. And that actually leads me into kind of a natural question, which is in this position as a writing coach, it sounds like you were essentially mentoring. I heard so much in your history almost like rebellion in a way at times. They're just like, I've got to prove that I'm awesome. But who were those mentors for you coming up? I mean, I feel like that falls into circle five. nodding her head. no, doesn't seem like she had any.
0: No, no, that, that's a really big difference. Jose has an amazing mentor, really, really special guy that has been his mentor since he was in university yeah. and is still a very dear friend. So we have a, one of our chapters is on mentoring and his is completely different from mine because his goes on in detail about who we found and how we found, I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Right. We're totally different because I said, never had one. And then my mentoring chapter is really a list of questions for people who seek a mentor, because I've done a lot of mentoring of other people to say, here are all the things you need to think about before you even think you want a mentor. And also saying some people are crappy at mentoring. Don't ask them just because they're really famous. They might not want to do it. Uh, They get asked, you know, Roxanne Gay constantly goes, oh, I'm constantly being bugged by people. Okay, sorry, you're so famous. I'm sorry. It's so annoying, (laughs) Um, you know, but this is the nature of, you know, once you're a really big name, people are going to come, you know, screaming after you for freebies. I never I'm struggling to think of anybody who was a mentor in any meaningful way. I've always had uh, peers who luckily admire me and like me um, are willing to listen. Uh, I'll give an example. So this is not a mentor, but this is sort of how things work for me. And I was very honored. So, Canada is a smaller place. And so, I was really well known by the time I left at 30. I mean, people knew that the Globe and Mail is a really big deal. So, I can go back 20 years later and people remember my byline and my work. And that's quite an honor. So, I was writing a huge piece on Canadian healthcare about three years ago. And I reached out to a woman on Twitter who I'd never met, Canadian. She's quite a big deal. Um, Lefty liberal like me. I knew she'd be a really good source for the story. And I DM'd her on Twitter and went, because we follow each other, I said, sorry to bug you. Can you help me get started on this really, really big, terrifyingly ambitious piece? And she wrote back and I was practically in tears. She said, I've admired your work for years. I can't wait to help you. Who knew? Who knew? Wow. So that's sort of more how I get mentored is when I put my hand up and say, hey, can anybody help? I feel really lucky and grateful that generally somebody says, yeah, I will do that for you. It's a quieter sort of thing. It's not a one-on-one constant thing.
1: Right, right. No, that's, um you know, we've brought it up a couple of times during this conversation, so now is the time I'd like to officially ask about it, which is that essence of being either an introverted or extroverted artist. You said it a couple of times about you need that alone time, you need that alone time. You just kind of touched on it in that last answer. You know, you raise your hand when you kind of need to. But I, I would love to just leave it open for you, broad stroke of a question of like, what are your thoughts and feelings about that? How does that work for you of like, you need that introverted time? Or do you need to be more gregarious and go out there and connect? Um, For your creativity to work?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Both? Right. Let me think of it. That's a really interesting question. I don't, yeah, I'm very gregarious, but I'm also really productive of silence and solitude. Um, And I just don't think you can be only one thing because if you're constantly silent and alone, I don't know. I I know I think we all need sounding boards. I mean, you need somebody to say, "Yeah, that really makes sense," or like, "What does this mean?" or like, "What are you talking about?" or "Where are you going with this?" You know, in a loving way, but a could, you know, like a tough love, like, "What is this?" Yeah, it's a really it's an interesting question. I get a lot of ideas from talking to other people. I get feedback from talking to other people, which means obviously I'm gregarious because I'm talking to other people. I'm on Twitter way too much. Because you know, COVID especially, it's lonely and boring. You have to stay away from everybody to stay alive now, especially with monkeypox. It's very frightening. <laughs> right. And so I think social media for me is much more important than I want it to be. I have to say that I wish it wasn't, but that's kind of where I hang out a lot more. And I live in the suburbs and I don't have kids. It's lonely. It's lonely. So that's a challenge, the constant balance between, you know, if I lived in Brooklyn, all the hipsters would be there and I could go have like creative <laughs> conversations with people. But I also, I'm very wary of that because i'm very competitive
1: Mm. and
0: ideas are frequently stolen and i've seen that happen so i'm very careful so i think our ip our intellectual property is very important and we have to be careful we have to be mindful of that it's nothing anybody teaches you but once you've had a few bad experiences you're like oh maybe i won't do that or maybe i'll (laughs) tell my friends not to do that right and so i think it's a real balance between and this is where i'm very lucky that jose and i our family motto which will be on our gravestones is (laughs) Off the record, <laughs> and 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 I use this expression with my friends all the time, like off the record, meaning like don't share this with anybody. And they understand I'm not fooling, I'm not kidding around about that. And so that to me is very helpful. So it's a sort of a blend of you could be alone a lot, but then when you need somebody, which we do,
1: yeah.
0: yeah, there's generally somebody there that I trust, and people turn to me, which I'm I'm very honored by. I have a, a friend in Ohio who calls me his guru. I'm like. Okay, I guess, whatever. I don't know. I'm I'm surprised by that. But
1: um,
0: does that answer the question? It's a hard question
1: to answer. No, and and it is a hard question. And I think if it helps my experience, it is that I probably need to start quantifying it in a way, like if you could throw percentages on it, like, because I know personally, I fall far too much on the introverted scale. You know, if if the percentages are there, it's in the 70s and 80s. And that's too much where interesting. the perfectionism bug for me kicks in a lot where I say, it's got to be just right, got to be just right. Just before our recording today, I did a kind of a solo podcast episode for the Circle 5 podcast. And Caitlin, I was hating a lot of how it sounded. And then, of course, when I put it on the airwaves, my friends sent me a message to say, your voice sounds fantastic.
0: Oh, you know, you have a great voice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you you have a very good voice. Oh, thank you for that. Oh, yeah. I
1: think because, yeah, your answer is absolutely right that you need sounding boards. I probably need one more often because the negative story gets in my head about how I'm not good. Well, enough.
0: then email me, email me. I'm good. I'm good right. at that because there we go. <laughs> because no, very quickly, the perfection thing is a real problem Yeah. and I, I admire it, but I think it's a real problem. And I'm a big believer in just, just hit send. There you don't go. be sloppy. Don't bang it out. Don't phone it in. Yeah. I think there's a very fine line between meticulous and stymied. And there's a lot of that in writing, especially people like it has to be perfect. Right. And I'll tell you one very specific anecdote. So when I got my first contract, which was incredibly long and terrifying because it was like 15 pages, it says the work must be publishable. Mm. It doesn't say the work must be perfect. Now, publishable is a really vague word and it's bullshit because then they can just like say no and then you're screwed. But uh, that's something that stuck with me for the last 20 years. It just has to be publishable. What the fuck? So I hit send already. If they don't like it. They'll let you know. Right, and so I'm not somebody who sits there and beats herself to death with perfectionism because A, I'll never get paid, and I have bills, and B, I'd rather be out and discussed and in the public eye and view than just sitting at home going, it's not perfect yet. I'll be dead before it's
1: perfect. There you because go. Because there's
0: no such thing as perfect perfection doesn't exist, right? We know this as creatives.
1: Absolutely. Could not agree more. And I'll go ahead and we'll start to land the plane. We're going to get into this final section. Okay, You've already given me so much great insight and advice, things that I can take away from this conversation. But this is kind of the point of the podcast, which is this open-ended thought here at the end about work-life and creative balance. Because the reason I created this podcast is that I experienced this collision of circles in a way. You know, the example for me is finally sitting down to write creatively. Then I get a text from dad that has nothing to do with art. And like you were we're talking about introversion, extroversion, my headspace, it's gone. It's all a mess. And I'm wondering, do you experience any kind of similar feelings or experiences as an artist? And just what your thoughts are on that, of how we maintain a sense of balance between all these different types of relationships?
0: Well, if you have a horrible family, it's a lot easier. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. That was my, that's my, my <laughs> yes, instincts before. I think I was you like, knew that was yeah, coming, was like, right? That's yeah, not like, a problem like, for her. <laughs> like,
0: my mom's been dead for two years and we didn't speak for the last decade. So that was easy. Okay. It wasn't. She was alcoholic. It was very painful. But that was a decision. And my dad is very difficult. So I didn't see him for two and a half years because of COVID. We're on the phone fairly often. Right. Um. You know, my siblings, big old mess. So I don't I don't have relatives like in my face because they're just not there. You know, it's really me and Jose, and you know we're very tight, and that there was a very good relationship. We're probably more in mesh than we probably should be creatively, and but that's okay. I, I enjoy it. It's hard for me to answer. I'm very tough. I'm very able to say no, go away, or I won't answer the phone, or I won't reply to an email, or I'll just say no next week. Or I mean, I'm very protective. The one thing that you learn, because I'm old as dirt, the one thing you do learn is you start to have, and this is just very obvious, limited energy and limited time, especially limited time. It makes you feel a much greater sense of urgency. What am I going to get done today? not in a month, not six months from now, not five years from now, because who the fuck knows if I'm going to be alive five years from now, especially with COVID, which is very frightening. And I do think if it hasn't given every one of your listeners a sense of urgency, they need to get one like today. And at that point, you get much more protective. I mean, it's not to say you're unkind to your family. And yes, people have little kids and God bless you, because I don't know how you do that, because I don't have kids. And that was a decision. I didn't want children. And so it's, it's a stupid analogy, but you sort of create a corral for yourself and you put up fences and there might be a razor wire on top of those fences. And you know, you come out and you play when you want to play with people or creatively or intellectually or whatever way. But then you're like, okay, I'll see you guys later. Like I'm I'm working, I'm busy, I'm this, I'm that. And it's not as overt as that. I mean, I just want to, I want to talk to people, I call them up. I mean, I'm always reaching out to my friends, like, let's go to a concert, let's go to a show. How are you? I'm very social. But if I'm working on something, no, I hate being interrupted jobs were just a nightmare because somebody would try to talk to you. You're like, go away, you know, like, <laughs> leave me alone. And because, you know, we've, it's been written about many times. If your focus is interrupted, it's very hard to get back to what it is. Ideas only come at a certain pace and a certain time. And if you don't grab it, you know, it's like some little butterfly. You're like, ah, it's over there. So like, you have to write that stuff down or you have to make a note of it. Twyla Tharp has an amazing thing. I want to leave you with this. And if you have any more questions, it's fine. She has a great insight and I love it. It's from her book. And Twyla Tharp says, get a big cardboard box. Get a big cardboard box, a physical object. Put it in your room where it will annoy you because it's there all the time. And she said, every time you have an idea about your project, put it in there. It could be a feather, it could be a stone, it could be a ticket, it could be you know, a token from the subway from 50 years ago. It, whatever, it doesn't matter. Put it in the box. It concretizes that you have an idea and you are committed to that idea.
1: And it's brilliant.
0: That is brilliant.
1: For someone that didn't think they'd have a great answer to that question, (laughs) come on. Nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. Aced it, full dismount, 10 from the judges. Absolutely. So I am so humbled and thankful for this conversation. I end the conversation with two quick hitters, two very quick hitters. It can be one answer, one word answers if you need them to be. But in the spirit of work life and creative balance, by the way, I love what you just said about what do we do today? Not six months from now. So forgive this question, but here it is. In the next 30 days, yep. I need more blank. Fill in the blank.
0: Money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a fair answer.
0: <laughs> I, you know, I, I got my bill from California and I was like so bad. I had to call American Express and go, I'm sorry, what is this? <laughs> um, and now it's like, oh, shit, I better get some more work. So, yeah. Um, and I want to sell our book. Those okay. are the two things I want more than anything.
1: <laughs> and then the final uh, question is the reciprocal. In the next 30 days, I need less. Heat.
0: I'd like it to be in the 70s so I can go outside because it's 98 degrees. I literally have not been outside except this morning to buy groceries. So... Yeah. no, It's too it's, basic,
1: right? No, it's okay. It'll just date the your episode. It was in yeah, the it's summer. it's artistic. It? It's fantastic. Caitlin Kelly, thank you so much. I think we've reached the end of my questions. We have touched all five circles of relationships. Something I do ask, but I understand your answer for this because you say intellectual property is important. So the question I asked to kind of end out is if there's any creativity you'd like people to look out for any project. But if that answer is no, that's okay. But is there anything creative out there that you'd like people to take a look at or? to keep an eye out for?
0: Yeah, no, no, I appreciate it. I mean, just take a look at my website. If you like it, hire me to write for you or, you know, coach you or whatever. I'm always looking for interesting projects. Right now I'm talking to um, one big company has come to me potentially, and then two nonprofits. Uh, and a design website. So I'm working on a lot of different things and I really like the variety. I just want this bloody book to get sold. Then I'm gonna come on and plug the hell out of it, but we're not (laughs) there yet. Yes,
1: yes, we'll have you back for that. And then the other question, (laughs) yes, is is there any uh, social cause out there, any kind of charity, anything that you feel is near and dear to your heart that you would like people to pay attention to?
0: Oh, abortion rights, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that's to me the most important. Women's rights are being crushed as we speak. So that's a real, that's a real problem.
1: Absolutely. No. Well, we can find Caitlin Kelly, as she mentioned, on her website. That's Caitlin Kelly, dot com. She's on Twitter at at Caitlin Kelly NYC. And you can find her books at thriftbooks.com and search for her, Caitlin Kelly. Again, Caitlin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being a guest on Circle 5. This has been phenomenal.
0: Thank you, Valerie.
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Circle 5 Podcast, a conversation with Caitlin Kelly, writing coach and writer from Tarrytown, New York. Before I sign off, I'd like to ask you to like, subscribe, follow, leave a review, or do whatever you can on your listening platform to keep you connected to this podcast. If you're an artist out there and you're interested in being a guest on Circle 5, I'd love to have you. Please come share your stories, experience, and creative work with our listeners. One of my not-so-subtle goals with this podcast is to champion artists and the arts. Whether you're an established professional artist or a semi-pro one, working hard at your creativity with lots of aspirations and dreams, your voice is valid and has a home on this podcast if you'd like to share. My email is mallory at circle5podcast.com. That's M-A-L-L-U-R-Y at circle5podcast.com. Please be in touch and I'll set up an episode for you. Thanks again for listening. My name is Mallory Patrick Pollard, and this has been the Circle 5 Podcast. Conversations with artists and creative professionals about life balance. God bless and take care until next time.